Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Father, as we reflect on the authority of King Jesus, we pray that this moment where that authority is questioned would open our eyes to the true power that he rules and reigns with. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it seems, based on what we've just read, that the temple suffers from a little bit of an authority problem. The rulers of the temple have a problem with authority, and we're going to explore what exactly that problem is. In your Bible, this text probably has a section heading, and that section heading will say something like, the authority of Jesus challenged. Maybe, but as you read this, it seems to me that the authority being challenged truly is not the authority of Jesus. It's the authority of those who question him. But let's take a look. Matthew says, when he, Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? It's important to realize who it is that's issuing this challenge. When Matthew talks about the chief priests and the elders of the people, this group together, what is known as the Sanhedrin, they are the ruling council. They rule over the city. They rule over the temple. In other words, technically, these are the authorities. The authorities who control what happens in these spaces are now challenging Jesus's right It's as if they're coming to him and saying, look, we haven't given you permission to do what you're doing, where you're doing it. So what right do you have to be here? And it's significant that it's not just the the what he's doing, but the where he's doing it that is at issue, because the where he's doing it is the temple itself. Jesus is coming into the temple precincts, and there he is teaching the people, but the temple is the center of authority. The temple is the place where God dwells with us, where he tabernacles with his people. Now, Jesus was questioned by these same leaders from afar when he was ministering out in the hinterlands. We've seen them send emissaries to test and to try him. 
That should have sent a message to Jesus about how they felt. But now he's on their doorstep. Now he's come to the temple itself. Now he's teaching in the very precincts that are the center of their authority. You might say he's come face to face with them in the heart of what they think of as their power, not his. So they challenge him. By what authority are you doing these things? But what things are they talking about? We can actually unspool this a little bit and recognize that there's more to it than what's happening in this moment, right? Obviously, right now, he's teaching in the temple. So that's one of the things that he's doing. But in the Greek, that that term, these things, suggests not teaching or words, but actions. You're doing something that we have a problem with. Well, if we just trace things back, remember, he's not just teaching in the temple, but earlier he came into the temple and had the audacity to cleanse it to drive out the robbers who were there, uh, driving out people whose presence in the temple, by the way, was approved of by the Sanhedrin. These authorities had given their stamp of approval to people who Jesus had then driven out by what authority? But he'd done more than that. Jesus, when he entered Jerusalem, as we saw at the beginning of the chapter, was acclaimed as Messiah, received worship from the people, He entered as a conquering king. In Luke's gospel, they openly challenge this as well. They tell Jesus to rebuke the people who are crying these things out. So as we go back, we see like these things include all of this. You might say it includes all of Jesus's teaching up to this point and the miracles that validated that teaching as well. By what right, by what authority, Is he doing all these things? Essentially, they're challenging Jesus. By what authority are you doing Messiah things? By what authority are you performing the works that are the works of the Messiah? What gives you the right to come here acting as if you are the promised priest king? That's the question. That's the challenge. Now, if you think about it, at least on its face, that question is not out of order, right? That is an appropriate question for the authorities of the city and of the temple to be asking. If somebody just comes in off the street teaching in the temple, you would expect the leaders of the temple to inquire into what is going on, right? They have a duty to ask because they're the keepers of the city. They're the keepers of the temple. And yet, the state of the city and the state of the temple suggests that they've been neglecting the duties that God has given them. And that lends a certain irony to the high horse that they're standing on now. So the question is, how will Jesus respond to this question? Do these men have a right to demand that Jesus justify himself to them? Do any of us have a right to demand that Jesus justify himself to us? Because we certainly act as if we do. Let's see what Jesus does. Matthew says, Jesus answered them. I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. 
So picture it. They've come to Jesus and they've confronted him in public, right? In front of people as he's teaching. They've challenged his right to do this. And then Jesus accepts that opening and reverses it in public, in front of the people. He poses a question to them that they now must answer. But he doesn't dismiss them out of hand, and that's interesting. He doesn't just say, hey, you can't ask me questions. Instead, he entertains the question, but seeks to qualify it. If they can answer his question, he says, then he will answer theirs, and he will explain the authority that he does these things with. So do they have a right to challenge his authority? Well, how they answer his question is going to tell us one way or the other whether or not their question is legitimate. So he poses the question, the baptism of John, he says, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? It's interesting that that's the point that Jesus raises. Why John? Why ask them what they think about John the Baptist? What's the significance of John? Well, it was John the Baptist who proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, right? He was the forerunner. He was, according to Jesus in Matthew 17, Elijah returned. So if you have ears to hear this, he is Elijah. And Elijah, in returning, had proclaimed the coming of the Messiah and said who that person was. And he said, it's Jesus. So basically, John the Baptist had already proclaimed where the authority of Jesus originated. So accepting or rejecting the ministry of John was really crucial to this question of where Jesus' power and authority came from. If these men had listened to John the Baptist, if they had listened the way that the people around them had listened, then they'd already know where Jesus gets his authority. They would already realize the source of his power. Having rejected John, though, they've shown that they're not going to listen to God's prophets. If God sends prophets and says he is the one and you close your ears to it, what further evidence would you listen to if you've rejected the word he sent? Now, Jesus, when he uses the term the baptism of John, seems to be using this as a catch-all for the ministry of John, for the message of John, for everything that John did. And yet... The way that he encapsulates all of that is in the act of baptism. And he specifically asks, was the baptism of John from heaven or was it from man? And on this point, John Calvin has an interesting aside. This isn't it curious, isn't it interesting to see that for our Lord, for Jesus, the idea that, that all teaching originates either from God or from man, seems really apparent, the way he phrases it. And not only all teaching, but also uh, other practices of the church, for example, the sacraments, baptism. So we've been looking in adult Sunday school at the sacraments of the church. One of the things we've said that distinguishes something that is a sacrament from something that is not is that a sacrament must be instituted by Christ himself. 
not something that we've come up with to please him, but something that he's given us to do. That's the distinction. And isn't it interesting that Jesus seems to assume this same thing when he holds up the baptism of John and he says, basically, either it came from heaven or it came from man. You tell me which one of those two things it is. So, the Sanhedrin do what all good committees do. They deliberate. They talk amongst themselves about how to answer this question. Now, remember, they and their emissaries have been on the receiving end of the cleverness of Jesus before, right? They can see trick questions when they're coming. And so they're not just going to blurt out an answer. They're going to think about this one and see if they can maybe get the better of him. And Matthew gives us the essence of their deliberation. So they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, option one, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? So obviously, we cannot say that. But if we say from man, option number two, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So obviously, we can't do that. Like, we can't acknowledge that the baptism of John was from heaven because we did not follow John. And that would basically be condemning ourselves. But we also can't say that it's from man, which is what we actually believe, because we're surrounded in public by these people who disagree with that, who think John was a prophet, and they might turn against us. So clearly, we cannot do that either. And so... Faced with two bad options, they decide to do nothing. So they answer Jesus, we do not know. That dilemma of theirs reveals their true authority. Faced with this question from Jesus, these men ought to answer, rightly or wrongly, based on what they believe to be true. They've been asked as leaders of Israel whether or not John was a true prophet or a false one. And as leaders of Israel, they should answer truthfully, publicly to this question. If John was from God, then they had an obligation to say so. And if he wasn't, then surely as the religious authorities, they had an obligation publicly to say so, to warn the people against him. But when they're given the opportunity, they won't speak the truth, whatever they think it is, out of fear of the crowd. They ask Jesus where his authority comes from, but now they reveal where their own authority comes from. It comes not from heaven, but from man, because that's who they're afraid of. That's who they won't speak the truth on account of. That's a pretty telling thing for these men to reveal about themselves and about their motivations. And Jesus, when he hears this, speaks words that you might hear as a kind of pronouncement, a kind of judgment. He said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. These are men who came to Jesus with a question. But because of their authority, because of who they listened to and defer to, because of who they feared, Jesus will not 
answer them. That's tragic. Throughout the Gospels, you see that those who submit to God's authority but lack understanding, Jesus often gives answers to them. He gives assistance. He helps them to see things more clearly. But not here. These men, because they do not submit to God's authority, he won't even answer their challenge. He won't even dignify it with a response. These leaders follow man not God. So they're in no position to judge the God-man, Jesus Christ. And neither, by the way, are you. The temple has a problem with authority. But the church has a problem with authority too. Ask yourself this, why is the temple in the state that Jesus finds it in? Why is the city so misled that Jesus weeps over it? Well, it seems as if the problem starts right at the top and then trickles down. The source of the corruption that Jesus finds in the city of peace is that it looks to a wrong authority. That it fears man, not God. And here the Sanhedrin reveal what you might think of as a two-part problem. Right? First, instead of fearing God as they should, they fear man. They develop doctrine and they make decisions based on the politics of human power, not on the word of God. That's their first problem. That they're not paying attention to God, but rather fearing man. But there's a second problem that flows from it. Because they fear man rather than God, they're silent when they should speak out. And they speak out sometimes when they ought to remain silent. That's the essence of their authority problem. They look to the wrong authority, to man, not God. And as a result, when they ought to speak out, they're silent. And they speak out sometimes when they ought not to. The church didn't always have the same blind spots as the temple, though. There was a day where the church, by its example, corrected the errors of the temple. And it was a glorious day indeed. You'll find this in Acts chapter 4. Right after Pentecost, the ministry of the apostles is first beginning under the power of the Holy Spirit when they're performing healings and proclaiming the gospel These same men, the Sanhedrin, these chief priests and elders do not like what's happening. They thought they'd solved this problem, and now it's back with a vengeance. So they arrest Peter and John, and they throw them in jail, and they call them before the council. And Luke, in the book of Acts, records what happens in that moment. This is Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 5. And we're going to look all the way through verse 20. Luke writes, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. So this is a familiar gathering of men. It's essentially the same group that we see in Matthew 21. And when they had set them, Peter and John, in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Deja vu, anyone? It's the same question. 
They're asking the same question, the same men asking the same question for the same reasons. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, so again, the council deliberates. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So their fear hasn't changed. They can't deny the sign because the people have seen it, but they don't want the word to spread. So the answer is to shut these men up. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Here it is. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. The exact same scene repeated in Acts 4 that we see in Matthew 21 with the apostles targeted. And Peter, speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit, answers the question, by what authority we do this? And the authority is the authority of King Jesus. Peter gives them the name. It's Jesus. And then, channeling Matthew 21, he quotes some Psalm 118 to them. Right? Remember that, that incredible liturgical psalm that the people cried out from as Jesus entered, that Jesus himself will quote from towards the end of chapter 21. He does it here. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is marvelous in our eyes. It's the Lord's doing. But he applies it. Right? He applies it. He says, the stone that the builders, you, have rejected has become the cornerstone. He challenges these men who bow down to the wrong authority. And when they command the apostles to be silent, when the authority of man instructs silence about the word of God, well, Peter and John answer as the Sanhedrin should have answered in Matthew 21. They show them what the right answer to this question is. They must listen to God, not man. And in that moment, 
In Acts 4, the church, by its example, calls the temple to repentance by showing it where true authority lies. The power that commanded obedience to man was corrected by the powerless who followed God instead. The Sanhedrin, from their comfortable thrones, these counselors, they challenged Jesus while fearing the crowd. And then the apostles, dragged from their prison cells, challenged the council while fearing God. My question for you is how did we forget? How did the church, which on that day covered itself through its testimony in glory, forget what its true authority was? Because that's the tragedy. The tragedy is that the church forgets its founding, and now the church has a problem with authority too. Once our leaders stood alone against the Sanhedrin, and now our leaders all too often have become the Sanhedrin. It should be as simple for us as listening to God and not man. But when what God says is hard, when what God says costs too much, we follow leaders who fear the crowd and whisper in our ears the age-old question of Genesis 3, did God actually say that? The symptoms of our authority problem are the same as theirs. Leaders who form doctrine and make decisions based on the will of man, not the word of God. Leaders who are silent when they ought to speak out. In other words, when the word speaks, but are ready to speak out when they ought to be silent. In other words, when the word is silent. You can recognize these churchly Sanhedrin because they always punch in one direction. They always punch towards God, not man. For them, it's always scripture that needs to justify itself. It's always God who needs to make his case. For them, the world always seems to have figured out what the church has been wrong about all along. And it would be easy to say this and and, and sound like some sort of angry denunciation, as if what I'm saying is, you know, thank goodness for this church, for grace, because we're not like that, the way they are. But I'm not angry as I say this, and and if I am a little bit, it's angry at myself, because this is a weakness that I find very relatable. This is a shortcoming that I find very tempting, and I imagine you do as well. I'm afraid that if the church has to depend on leaders like me, then there's no hope, because I know what it's like to fear the crowd. I know what it's like to stay silent when you should say something. And I know what it's like to say things when you ought to just keep your mouth shut. All of that I find very easy to identify with. As much as I want to be like Peter and John, in other words, I worry that I'm too much like the Sanhedrin. And that with a little bit of power, I would be tempted, just as they are, to do whatever it took to hold on to it, not to lose it. Rather than following the Savior who set aside his power to save the powerless, I'd be no better than they would. And I think in that you can 
identify as well. But that brings us to the one lesson I have for you. The, the one point that I want to make here. It's a simple one, but it's an important one. You might think this is the moral of the story. It's the one thing to take away. Look, if back in the days of Matthew 21, you were trusting in the hierarchy of the temple, then you would have been in trouble. Because as this passage reveals, the hierarchy of the temple was corrupted. It got its marching orders from man, not from God. And by the same token, if today you are trusting in the hierarchy of the church, then you're in trouble because the leaders of the church today all too often derive their doctrine and make their decisions based on the authority of man, not God. Now, the lesson is this. We're not relying on any hierarchy, temple, or church. We're not trusting in priests or elders to save us or apostles either. We trust in Christ alone, and all authority is given to him. We're anticipating ourselves a little bit, but at the, the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 28, Jesus says this in the Great Commission. Matthew writes, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If Peter and John answered differently than we would in Acts chapter 4. It might have been because, to borrow uh, the centurion's term from Matthew 8, they were men under authority. They say to the Sanhedrin, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We have no option. Similar words to what much later Martin Luther would say. Here I stand. I can do no other. It's not boastful. It's a statement of of obligation. I have a duty to my God to follow what he says. I have no alternative. Because the king who has all authority in heaven and earth has sent them and sent us to make disciples of all nations. That's right, he sent them, but he sent you as well. And with the same authority to rely on, the same power to trust in. If the authority of Jesus has freed you from the power of sin and death, then surely it's also freed you from the authority of man and from the fear of the crowd. The Christian armies of old marched against earthly powers with the cry, no king but Jesus. And if the reign of Christ means anything in this age, it means that that motto can be our motto too. If Jesus is your king, then you need no other. If Jesus is your king, then there is nothing and no one else to fear. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. 
We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.